You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted to have you along for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. As we settle into a new dawn of inclusion, civility, honesty, compassion and finding the light in what has felt like never-ending shade, to quote the eloquent, poised, wise and beautiful National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman, so too do the arts settle into a time of reimagining, reimagining how we experience the arts, how we connect with them and how we advocate for them to represent a more diverse array of stories. There is no doubt that the arts industry has been ravaged over the past year, and yet is it not to art and music and theatre that we turn to when we need to explore our feelings, our own joy and our own pain? For many of us, the arts are critical to our emotional and psychological health because they help us to find catharsis. They tell us that we are not alone. They let us know that the feelings with which we battle are shared by others. Let us hope that President Biden, Madam Vice President Harris, and their administration's plans to build back better will acknowledge the importance of the arts and artists so that we can find catharsis for the past four years. I am hopeful. So, off we go. My first guest this morning is a festival executive director who has gone through the process of reimagining what the event he oversees looks like in these topsy-turvy times. Alex George is an author, owner of Skylark Bookshop and founder of the annual Unbound Book Festival, now in its sixth year. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? I am well. Now, I know this is a huge week for you, as it is week one of a three-month programme of Unbound Book events that culminate on Friday, the 23rd of April, with a keynote event featuring two, not just one, but two Pulitzer Prize winners, poets Tracy K. Smith and Jericho Brown. So I do appreciate you finding time to chat today, Alex. So let me start by asking you to tell us what Unbound is and how it got started, as I know there are always people who are new to town and who maybe don't know about the literary festival. Sure. So as you said, this is the sixth year of Unbound, if we're going to count last year, which was a sort of mini festival just after COVID broke and we did a few things online. The idea came to me way, way back in about 2012 when I was actually on book tour for, for one of my novels. And I was invited to attend various festivals, one in Maryland and one in Texas. And I just thought, well, Columbia could do with something like this. You know, we're a very 
bookish town. We've got lots of writers who live here and lots of great readers and book clubs. And so I sort of put that idea away for a little bit. And it's resurfaced a few years later. And I began to talk to people and said, what do you think? Do you think we should do this? And everybody said, oh, absolutely, we should do this. Um, and none of us, of course, had the faintest idea of what was involved <laughs> when we sort of began to plan all this, which is probably in retrospect a, a good thing. Um, and so we put our heads together. We began to make plans. We raised a little bit of money. And the first event was in 2016. Uh, Michael Ondaatje was our keynote speaker that year. He of English patient fame. And that was a wonderful event. And we had, I think, that year somewhere in the region of maybe 26 or 27 authors and poets who came. Um, and it grew and grew. And every year, the festival has gotten bigger and bigger. And I think we had about 65 or 70 authors who came when we last had it in person back in 2019. So it's been a it's been a wonderful uh, rather exhilarating ride uh, to watch the thing grow and um, and in addition to the authors getting bigger the audiences have increased too and so we're up to I think nine and a half thousand people attended an unbound event uh, back in 2019 so it's been a riot and uh, and good fun and um, after the heartbreak of of last year we um you know we're doing something a little bit different of course and so everything's going to be online had the name Unbound been lurking in your brain for a while? Or did you have a lengthy set of focus groups? Or was it born after a particularly lively <laughs> dinner party after lots of wine had been consumed? How did you come up with the name? So the the name actually rather is it's a, it's a funny story, but it's a little prosaic. <laughs> I actually just wrote something on Twitter. And I said, if you were going to name a book festival, what would you call it? And people, lots of people responded. And I think they assumed that I was asking the question for the purposes of a book I was writing, um, because I, I didn't I didn't go into any detail as to, as to why I was asking the question. And one of the answers was unbound. And I just thought, oh, I rather like that. And I like it because obviously a book can be unbound. But for me, it's more the festival itself is, is what the word applies to. And, you know, we we try and sort of break down barriers. And uh, we always think that there sort of are the possibilities when it comes to a festival like this uh, are, are limitless. And so it sort of it fits quite nicely. Uh, we like it. What kind of barriers exist? What are you breaking down? Well, really, the main barrier is just our own imaginations and the limits of our ambitions. So, you know, we uh, every year we try and be more ambitious in terms of the programming that we do. We try and think outside the proverbial box a little more each year and try to stretch ourselves and stretch our audiences um, with the sort of programming that we do. So that that's really what I'm what I'm talking about. And from the get-go, you have always made this a completely free festival. Of course, this year with it being online, that maybe isn't as much as noticeable as, a, as a, an attendee. But even when the event was back when the event was all in person, that was very much a cornerstone of your mission from the beginning was that it was going to be a free event, which is wonderful for the festival goers, but it puts a huge amount of pressure on you and the organizing committee to find the money to fly all of these authors in. Why did you decide to make it free? You know, the, the question as to why is, is an interesting one, Diana, because it never really even arose as a question as to why we would do it. It just felt so, by which I mean, it wasn't even debated. It was a given 
to all of us that this would be free. And uh, I guess thinking it through, it's, you know, we we, um, believe that books are for everybody and they should be for everybody. And we absolutely didn't want to have any boundaries or barriers to entry. So it was just a fundamental tenet of, of, of the undertaking from the very start. That, that that we would not charge. And, you know, many people have said to us, well, goodness, if you have Salman Rushdie coming or you have George Saunders coming, you could easily charge some money. And we go, well, we know. <laughs> <laughs> we could, uh, but we prefer not to. And you're right, it does put a, 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 it's something of a strain on us in terms of the amount of effort and energy required to raise the money. But the community has been unbelievably generous and supportive throughout Unbound's existence and we are eternally grateful for for local folks who give us money and and help us out and I think they value and they understand the value of it being free because not everybody is able to help and those who can do so it seems to work out in the end. Is that standard for book festivals generally? It varies. Uh, Most book festivals that I have attended employ some sort of a hybrid model so there might be certain events that you have to pay for but most of them have some events that are free, but it does vary from festival to festival. Well, obviously, you are not working alone putting the festival together. You have a committee of people who add their expertise to the mix. So tell us a little bit about how the festival comes together and how you choose the authors or topics that you cover. There are many committees, in fact. We have a, a board, of course, and then beneath the board, there are several different committees. There's one for tech-related things. <laughs> That's a new one for this year, unsurprisingly. Uh, one for merchandise, one for advertising and outreach, uh, one for volunteers. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And we have just an absolutely unbelievable team of people who every year dedicate their time to make it happen. You know, it's, it is absolutely, uh, talk about taking a village, it takes us a heaving metropolis <laughs> to, to make this thing work. And I'm eternally grateful to each and every one of them. It's incredible. And the the other committee that I didn't mention is the programming committee. And there are five folks on that committee. And we, um, I mean, this year it's been a little bit different because everything has been a little bit different this year. But we, we just sit down and some people will come with ideas about a particular subject that they would like to explore. Uh, so sometimes panels are developed in that way. Other times there's a particular author or poet that somebody's particularly excited about. And uh, we, you know, we will sometimes build a panel around a particular author. That's something else that we do. This year, paradoxically, has is, has actually been much more complicated for the programming committee, because in the past, we've always just had one weekend. And so we can call somebody up and say hey are you available on april the whatever it is and the answer is either yes or no but since we're we've spread this year's festival out over three months there have been many many more balls in the air and it's actually proved much more complicated to try and work it all out because you have well a can make this date and b can make these two dates and c can do not this one but that one and you just have to work out how how it all works but we we just about <laughs> managed it in the end but there was a fair amount of banging heads against walls at certain points but but uh, it was it was completely worth it i think an embarrassment of choices so i mean this year the festival is back to front the keynote event closes the festival rather than opens it yes. and like you said you've expanded it from a single weekend to 13 weeks so first of all why did you opt for this super expanded format and why put the keynote at the 
at the end rather than the beginning. So we we went for the expanded format because one of the comments that we get every year is that people complain that there was too much choice and that they were being forced on the Saturday, which is the main event at Stevens College, there are usually six things going on simultaneously. And people didn't like that very much because they wanted to go to all of them. And so we thought, well, this is an opportunity. This is a, I hope... (laughs) fingers crossed, once in a lifetime opportunity to do something different. And so at no point will there be two events going on at the same time. So in theory, you could, if you wanted to, attend every single one. Uh, And it just struck me that that was an opportunity that we wouldn't have again. So we wanted to do it for that reason. There are also rather less interesting reasons, like just in terms of the logistics of having multiple streams going on at once. Um, And People are already spending a lot of time in front of screens these days. And so we didn't want to pack too much into too short a period of time. So we thought that spacing it out on a pretty regular basis, sort of every Tuesday and Thursday at seven o'clock would work. I mean, who knows if it's going to work? We'll find out. But um, that was that was the theory behind it anyway. Well, there is way, way too much in the festival schedule to cover it all today in one show. So let's plan to chat maybe once a month and then we can deal with the schedule in bite-sized chunks. But for today, let's take a look at maybe at some of the talks you have coming up over the next three to four weeks. Now, two events have already taken place this week. And coming up next week, you have, um, well, coming up for the next couple of weeks, you have a few evenings that focus on poetry. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, I mean, poetry has always been a fundamental part of what we do at Unbound. Uh, For me personally, it has been one of the most rewarding aspects of the festival because I was not, you know, I'm very much a prose guy and um, (laughs) meeting and and dealing with all of these poets has really opened my eyes to this whole other world, which, um, which I have adored doing. And one of the best things about the festival has been watching people go to poetry readings who and they've never gone to one before uh, and they might think that poetry readings are rather boring affairs and they often come away completely energized and surprised <laughs> their socks blown off when they discover that actually these are incredibly entertaining things because they are they're not really readings they're usually performances and uh, certainly um, the director of poetry when he makes these selections as to who to invite, he does so thinking about the way that they perform their poems in public, um, because performance is very much a part of it. And so it's been uh, a critical part of the festival from the very beginning. And what I learned actually just it was last month, we had a, our very first, oddly, our first poetry reading at Skylark Bookshop in our online series. And Poetry readings online are kind of fantastic because people just, they flood the comment section with comments and what they love and they'll repeat lines and they'll sort of, they'll sort of do online virtual applause. And there's this, there's this entire conversation going on on the side of the screen while the poets are reading. And it's, it's just, it's wonderful. It provides an entire, entirely new dimension to the experience. So that is one of the reasons why in this online context, we, we have a little bit more poetry this year than usual because we wanted to explore that. We wanted people to see just how how revelatory it can be to watch poetry performed online. 
But it's interesting that you say that it isn't your natural home. Uh, prose is where you've historically been more comfortable because that's certainly, I would confess to also being a poetry illiterate. I don't think I've ever willingly picked up a book of poetry, which I feel <laughs> is a terrible failing. So maybe I might be one of those people. I mean, I'm looking at the schedule. I'm thinking, well, I don't want to go to the poetry thing because it's not my deal. But maybe after what you said, I actually should go to the poetry readings because it will open my eyes to a new genre that I've previously avoided. Yeah, you really should. And that's what Unbound is all about. Uh, I mean, I understand that people, it's rather like people who come into the bookshop and they always gravitate towards the same sections. That's human nature that you do that. One of the joys of, of Unbound is is the the opportunity that it presents to open new doors and give people the chance to maybe discover things that they didn't know that they liked. Uh, so that's very much within the, in the spirit of the thing. So yeah, absolutely, come and listen to to the Missouri Poets uh, or the or the Emerging Poet Award. Wonderful people we have coming. So looking ahead into early February, you have an event on Thursday, the 4th of February, titled Times Like These, a user's guide, featuring two writers, Catherine May and Marley Grace. And it seems like this could almost be an overarching theme for any event taking place this year, times (laughs) like these. How do both these writers address these times? So Catherine May is a fellow Brit, actually. Uh, she lives in Whitstable. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've already interviewed her once. She she came to Skylark when her book was published in the US. It's called Wintering. And it, I think, is my favourite book of last year. I just adored it. And it talks about, Wintering is about the, the fallow periods in life that we all have. And what May does in this book is to suggest that all of these things are cyclical. They happen to everybody. And that rather than suffering through them and thinking, well, this is going to pass and I'll get on to something else. She says there's real value to be had from leaning into them and trying to learn a little bit about ourselves from those difficult moments and sort of being being just just approaching them in a different way. And it all made perfect sense to me. And it's just a beautifully written book. It's very funny, too, and very touching. And I have been giving it to many, many people since I've read it. And uh, we've sold a lot at the shop. And it's a fabulous book. Marley Grace's book, Getting to Centre, is um, similarly themed, but with a slightly different emphasis. And it's just talking about how we all have resources within us and the best way of uh, using those to to maximum advantage. So it's looking at it from a slightly different perspective, but the two of them together, it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal conversation. So when you have two people... I guess you have a moderator too that that directs the conversation and goes back and forth between them so it doesn't become kind of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't leave these writers <laughs> to their own devices. That, that never works. <laughs> so you also have a number of events on the festival schedule that look at the craft of writing, the first of which is coming up on the 16th of February on a Tuesday with author Michael Cardos talking about how to create and sustain suspense which I guess is one of those things that if it's done well, you almost don't know it's there as a reader. You just know that you have to keep on reading. So as an author yourself, can you talk a little bit about how difficult that is to do? 
Um, yeah, it is quite hard. Um, and, and what's difficult about it is the, the, the act of making something suspenseful in and of itself isn't very difficult. But rather, as you said, the trick is to hide it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you're sort of the, the reader isn't, isn't quite aware of what's going on in terms of, oh, I'm having my strings pulled. So you need to be um, discreet about it, I think, if it's really going to work well. And then you suddenly discover that it's two o'clock in the morning and uh, you haven't been able to stop reading. That's kind of the goal that feel that when people tell me that, that always feels like, yes, we did something right. So I think that, you know, when in Michael's talk, it's going to be it's not sometimes I think I worry that people see suspenseful fiction. And they think it's sort of people with daggers or jumping off cliffs or something like that. That's not necessarily the case. It's, it's just about keeping the reader engaged. And of course, that always as a writer is what you want to do. You want to make sure that you don't you know, you, you grab them and then you don't let go. Even though when there isn't something major going on, when you're building the plot or building character, you still need to have that component of why do I want to turn the next page? Why do I care? And so that I think is so interesting. Like you say, it isn't all like, you know, there's a person jumping out with a dagger on every other page. It's how do you maintain that momentum even when you're just moving the plot very gently forward? Yeah, that's right. And and I think there and there, of course, I mean, there are many ways of doing it. And everyone, I guess, has their own different ways of doing it. But, you know, just having characters and situations that are engaging and sympathetic is an important part of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see what specific things he proposes and techniques that he suggests. It's, it's not something that <laughs> I tend to think about um, when I'm writing. But now that you mentioned it, when you said why should we care? That was actually a question that my editor asked me all the time <laughs> when we were doing rewrites for the Paris Hours. And she was going, well, what is it? Well, why is the reader reading this? And so, um, and maybe if somebody had asked me that question a little earlier, <laughs> it might have made my life simpler. So <laughs> it's it's clearly, um, uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a, an on-point talk. Let's put it that way. So as I said at the beginning of our chat, the festival culminates on Friday, April the 23rd, with your keynote finale featuring a conversation between two Pulitzer Prize winning poets, US Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith and Jericho Brown. How complex is it to wrangle such two, such huge names to a virtual festival? Maybe it's easier than to an actual festival, but still, how do you do that? Well, forgive me, because I didn't answer your question earlier when you asked why the keynote was at the end. And in fact, one of our programming committee raised it as a point of order. Can you have a keynote at the end or is it called something else? <laughs> <laughs> to which I replied, I really don't care. Uh, so the, the reason why that is on, on April the 23rd is that that was going to be the date in normal times when Unbound would have been. That would have been the keynote. And then the Saturday, the 24th, would have been the regular day. And we had Jericho and Tracy were due to appear in the Missouri Theatre in 2020. And when that got cancelled, I spoke to their agent. They actually have the same agent, who's actually, oddly, is my agent as well. Very handy. I said, yeah, it helped. Uh, and I and I spoke and I said, well, can we just reschedule for 2021? And they said, yes. And back then, this was in sort of March of 2020, I think everybody thought that things would be back to normal by now. So when we then decided that we were going to do it all online, since we already had them locked in for that date, we just decided to stick with it. So it's going to be a celebration of the whole thing at the end rather than at the beginning. 
So how do people connect with all of these author evenings? How do they join in? So if you go to the website, which is unboundbookfestival.com, and you go to the schedule, there are links to each panel from that schedule. And for each panel, you will. there are two ways that you can watch. We're live streaming it. And you can either watch on Facebook or you can watch on YouTube. Um, and there are links for each one. Now, we can only put the links up, I think, a week ahead of time. So the only two links that are probably up at the moment will be the for the next two events. So the trick is really just to remember that it's pretty much every Tuesday and Thursday from now until April. There are a few times where we don't have an event because there are other conflicts. But generally speaking, that's that's the rule. So you can go and see. And if it's something that might be of interest to you, you can just click on it and have a look and see see whether it's something that's of interest to you. And these are at 7.30 or 7? There's seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. Okay. So to see the full schedule, go to unboundbookfestival.com and follow the links. You can also find information about all of the featured authors. And as always, attendance at any of the Unbound Book Festival events is entirely free and you do not need to sign up in advance. Thank you so much, Alex George, Executive Director of the Unbound Book Festival. Thanks, Diana. Amidst the juggling and reimagining of arts events, one project has quietly been chugging away for the past eight years and will take its first step to physical reality next Monday. The groundbreaking for the Gateway Plaza at the southeast corner of Broadway and Providence will be the start of a green space and sculpture garden dedicated to the city of Columbia and a welcome point for people visiting Columbia from the west. The person in charge of the project is the district's executive director, Nikki Davis, who is here with me this morning, along with the sculpture creating the installation artwork, Emmett Russell. Good morning, Nikki and Emmett. Good morning. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. So, Nikki, big week coming up, the partial culmination of a project that started back in 2012, way before you came on board as executive director. So tell us the background to the Gateway project. Absolutely. So we are the CID, we're the Community Improvement District for downtown. And one of our goals is to bring people downtown and let them know who we are. So by creating this, we wanted to celebrate the bicentennial of Columbia, which is this year. And I think that the committees, the people that have put in so much work on this, really wanted to welcome Colombians and people coming to visit alike to the district, the downtown area. And along with that, put a lot of our history in this beautiful piece so that people would get a sense of who we are. There was meetings after meetings. (laughs) Uh, We did so much community input on this project. We collected the community's words of what describes Columbia to them and passed through city council, gosh, about um, six years ago. And (laughs) finally getting to do the groundbreaking. We are very excited. All of these things take longer than you think when you set out. Maybe it's a good job we don't know that because we'd never start out on anything. (laughs) Emmett, you are the artist chosen to create the art installation for this gateway. Would you describe it for us? Sure. This is going to be the the letters that spell Columbia all in an array. And then the one letter that will be missing is the O, and we're replacing that with an eight-foot-tall stainless steel globe with words and things that we've also, or actually the team, the CID team selected 
the words and things like that that are going to be displayed on it. And I'm going to cut them out. I'm going to add them on. Some of them are going to be etched into the stainless ball. And so it's, it's just going to be a really neat feature. Then the letters along that spell Columbia, those are going to be five foot tall, three feet deep, all polished stainless steel. And on the sides of those, we'll have etched in some paragraphs and sentences and things like that, that just talk about Columbia. And so it's going to be a really highly polished stainless steel piece. It's going to be really neat and shiny. It'd be a real nice piece to be on the, on the corner of Broadway and Providence. So the, the O is the, the globe, and it's internally illuminated, right? So it'll glow at night. It will, yeah. Yes. And then partly you're etching into it, partly you're cutting through it with patterns and typography and dates and words, as Nikki said, that the community had an input on. Nikki, what was the process for gathering all of that input from the community about the words and the text that you wanted to have on the globe? We did a couple different ones. The CDB, the chamber building downtown, um, was gracious enough to host us at one point where we started to collect what we called the One Word Project. And then we set up different stations around the city hall, the district office, that people could input their one word, their one word that describes Columbia to them. We also had a website where we partnered with Como 200, who is doing a different section of the plaza area, the gate, uh, Flat Branch Park extension area, uh, where you could go online and submit your words as well. Um, so it was probably, I want to say, almost a six-month process just for those words. We also went to the community before that for different aspects of this plaza. Um, and that was, goodness, probably... <laughs> probably seven years ago, they did that. But they've gone over and over to make sure that the public could get as much input on this. Because again, this is something that that will be here for, you know, our grandkids, hopefully. And um, we wanted to make sure that we really captured the essence of, of Columbia. So you have words like vibrant, innovative, creative, eclectic, energetic, words that we like to think of ourselves as being. They're very positive and um, who we want to be as a community. And there are other dates from history, the dates that Columbia was founded, a little bit about Christian College, now Columbia College, and the date that was started, the first journalism school in the US, all the things that we know about for Columbia. But looking through the list that's on your website, and it might have changed, I'm not sure how today's it is. I have to say, it seems like a lot of white history. Does the Globe reference black history too? It does. There are definitely some civil rights dates on there. I believe there is one that is specific to the first black teacher at Mizzou and that he had to teach out on the steps of Mizzou because he wasn't allowed in the building. So we did make sure to include uh, those different dates. And I don't I don't think that we do have every single one of them on our website. I think it's more of a tease right now <laughs> uh, to get people excited about it. But yes, we took into great consideration. We couldn't obviously do every single important date, but as broad as we could. You know, Columbia is also a very artistic town, as I'm sure you know. (laughs) So I think a lot of the dates really tried to geared towards that. And unfortunately, we did have to cut. It was painful to cut out uh, some of the dates that we had to to fit it on here. We had to pare it down a bit. 
Emmett, what was the process to win this contract? What brief did you get from the city? Well, so, um, I just want to step in there very quickly. This is not a city project. Ah. The city has nothing to do with this project. Okay. What brief did you get from Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was reached out to by Nikki and Deb to to look at doing this project and to be the person that would bid it. So I did help a little bit with like bringing them to an idea of what could be fabricated and what couldn't be fabricated as like a, um, as an advisor, I guess. And then, and then I had to bid on it and there were several other people that bid on it as well. And so I had to do, I had to do well on my, on my bid and apparently I did well. So (laughs) it was a long process. And if I'm speaking honestly, I must be very impatient because I kind of sometimes walked away from it thinking, well, this isn't going to happen. And and I I just realized that, you know, things don't always move at the pace you want them to. But uh, it was worth the long process because all the right decisions are made. And now to fabricate this thing, it's just a matter of doing it. There's not a lot of all the planning has been done. All the artwork is done. Now the ball is definitely in my court. So have you started working on it or really the, the confirmation to go ahead was pretty recent and now you're starting? Yes. So the confirmation was very recent and we just got things rolling on that. And so right now I'm working on the samples to present to the CID to make sure that we're all on the same page of like the the etching work, the polish work. And then once I get that approval, I will start ordering materials to make it happen. Nikki, according to the district website, the the plaza and sculpture are going to cost just over $1 million. How is this all being funded? So back in 2012, when the board decided that this is what they wanted to accomplish, this is one of the main things, our big goals to get accomplished, we started setting aside money yearly. So we've been saving for this for upwards of eight or nine years to make this happen. So we have a very large savings for this. Uh, We also at one point did put out, and this was before my time, but put out the gateway as a donation entity. So you can donate to the Gateway Funds that goes directly to creating this amazing sculpture. And that is still open to the public today. We will also be, for the letters specifically, looking for sponsors or donors for those letters. And we are working on that process right now to see what that will look like. But to get your business or your name on a letter and sponsor it, have it there for for your grandkids to see, that is something that we are going to open to the public as well. Do you know what that will cost yet? So I think... I, I'm not sure if I should say yet. We're still, <laughs> okay. we're still in the in the middle of looking at that. But I think the obviously the globe will be significantly more. So we are considering breaking that into smaller pieces so that we can have, you know, more people participate, have more people be a part of this as opposed to one large donor. But that that will soon be out on our website if that is something anyone is interested in doing. And the sculpture is really in a kind of a little parkland. So that whole corner on the southeast corner of Broadway and Providence, does it connect to Flat Branch? So it becomes a kind of a green space. It's not just the word Columbia on the street corner. I mean, it's a whole sculptural little garden, right? So we have the district, the downtown CID is leasing that land from the city of Columbia, and we will be building 
the Gateway Plaza, which is just that right there. The City of Columbia, Como 200, has been working kind of in tandem with us to build the Flat Branch Park Extension. And that is where that will connect. Um, so that all along Providence will be a beautiful green space. There will be more sculptures in there. There'll be a gorgeous bridge that goes across the creek into Flat Branch Park. So they're calling it the Flat Branch Park Extension. So that whole creek area will be cleaned up. We are very excited. And that should, they will be doing construction at the same time as us. So uh, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have an amazing green space down there. So the timeline is to have the green space open by the summer and then the letters go in in August. Does that sound about right? It's about right. Okay. Emmett, is that... (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're shooting for. And Deb has kind of set a fallish timeline, but I would really, my goal is to have, as soon as I can set them on the concrete, that would be, you know, in that June, August, June, July, August time, whenever they get done, I would really like to be ready so it's done and taken care of. And the Debbie reference is Deb Shields, who looks after historic yes. preservation downtown. Before we close, Emmett, I wanted to say I've done a little background reading on you, and I realized that I have been a fan of your work for a few years now, <laughs> as you designed and built a lot of the interior components of the Bard Owl restaurant, <clears throat> the giant doors, the tabletops, the bar back and the bar ladder. I have admired those for so long, and I didn't realize that it was you. So great work. I'd love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about your wider work other than this particular piece. I would love to. You know, the Barred Owl was my, I call my breakout project. It was my first project I was able to put out into the public and have like a showpiece where I could send people to see what I did and working with a designer, Stephen Rust, and then Jeff Harrigan, who built it, it just snowballed my business. And that's a whole other story. But right. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great for me. We'll save that for another time. The groundbreaking ceremony for the new Gateway Plaza will be this coming Monday, January the 25th at 10 a.m. And due to COVID restrictions, this will be an event that people are encouraged to attend virtually. And the live streaming of the event will be broadcast via Facebook Live. Nikki Davis, Executive Director of the District and Artist Emmett Russell, thank you so much for chatting with me this morning. Thank you so much, Dan. This was great. Yeah, I'm excited to get this going. Theatre companies around the world are grappling with the reality of no audiences for the foreseeable future and a massive loss of creative talent, not only from the actors, dancers, musicians we see on the stage, but also the huge technical and creative support staff who make every production possible, many of whom have been forced to leave the industry and retool elsewhere. But here in Colombia, one nimble and energetic theatre company has truly embraced this new paradigm and next week launches their fourth digital production using the medium of Zoom. And with me for this next act of today's show are Greenhouse Theatre Project Executive Director and Actor Elizabeth Brown Palmieri, along with Director Tia James and one of the play's co-writers, Julia Valen. Hello, everybody. Hi, Hello. Hi. So, Elizabeth, I know you are here in Colombia. In fact, I can practically see your house from my driveway. (laughs) Tia and Julia, you are a little farther away. Where are you, Tia? I am coming out of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And Julia? And I am in Minnesota, just north of the Twin Cities. So exciting. Well, welcome to the audio version of Columbia, Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the magic of audio apps in the internet. So Greenhouse Theatre Project's upcoming production is called Nothing Can Stop What Is Coming, written by Olivier Hébert and Julia Valen. Julia, as one of the co-writers, tell us what it is about and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, so Nothing Can Stop What Is Coming is about the the personification of algorithms, so the internet algorithm, and her communication with the audience um, in in terms of what she means in their lives. Um, so Al, as she's called, speaks to the audience and takes them behind the scenes of a human named Joanna, uh, who's a student at the University of Kentucky. And she just takes the audience through what it's like to be behind the screens of uh, of a human, of Joanna. And it kind of uh, goes down a rabbit hill, <laughs> a rabbit hole, excuse me, rather from there. I just watched The Social Dilemma recently. And there, there were, yes. I don't know if you've seen that, but there were scenes in that where they're behind, behind the screen being yeah. the algorithm. So it sounds a little bit like, was yes. that an inspiration for you? <laughs> it was actually. And it's funny, as we worked on the play, I... <laughs> the uh, the comparison w- uh, really hit me over the head. I was like, "Oh, am I just what's his face from from Mad Men in, in the Social <laughs> Dilemma?" Yeah, that documentary was very inspiring, um, and as well as the podcast Rabbit Hole. But the um, so the algorithm, internet algorithms have really evolved in the past ten years, really, really recently, and they have. They have a hold over, they influence our lives now in a very different way than they used to when they were first developed in the early 2000s, because now machine learning has really taken things to a whole new level. And it's not, there, there are humans who, who wrote the code, but now the code thinks for itself based on what the humans coded it to do. So it just influences our lives on like a whole nother level. Elizabeth, what is your reaction to the play? What do you want people to know about this play? So Julia approached me with this play a couple months ago, and she sent me a shortened version of the script and asked if I would be interested in producing it for Greenhouse. And, you know, reading just the the, the mini version that she sent me, of course, I, you know, I've worked with Julia before, those Colombians know her from Hedda Gabler. She came last year and performed that with us. And then she did COVID Buddies on Zoom with us this last fall. So, I mean, having worked with Julia, I I get her sense of humor. I get just, I I trust her, I'll put it (laughs) that way. And, um, And so when she proposed this piece, I loved that it was so heavily influenced by something that we are all addicted to right now and not not that we want to be addicted to it we're just it's, it's kind of attached to us for better or worse and it's something that i feel like everyone can understand and relate to right now so basically i felt like oh you know people will watch this and and there i think there's going to be so many inside moments that people connect to there's a lot of social media references and or jokes you know what I mean or just these things that like yeah you google a pair of underwear and then the next thing you know (laughs) all your you're getting like a million boy short ads like on all of your social media and you're like oh like we sometimes we just don't even think about that and I love what this piece does it kind of breaks it down 
and pulls the curtain back and shows you the wizard. And it's really fun. It's a fun piece, even though it's dealing with some pretty intense themes, um, themes that are just in the last couple weeks. I mean, this play has become like even more relevant and you'll know why Diana, when you see it, but, um, (laughs) so, you know, what do I want people to take away from it? I guess people are, like I said, for better or worse, they're going to relate to it because this is our life right now. And this is, it's the piece has just been so, (laughs) I think we've all like every, every time we have a rehearsal, we all come together and there's like this moment of, we all have to take like a collective breath together just because of, you know, we've all been researching and our research is basically the news. It's basically what's going on in the world right now. And so it's heavy, it's heavy stuff, you know? And so we come together and we just have to kind of like, Om Shanti Shanti, man, you know, like shakes some of that stuff out. But then we also have to infuse that into this material because this is the story we're telling. So yeah, I think I just want, you know, people to, to see the inner workings of, of this, like, poison that's that's like running through all of our veins right now other otherwise known as the internet julia have you changed your habits as a result of (laughs) writing this play and researching it oh i'm really trying (laughs) um actually it's funny you ask that because the other day i was like um because you know all these tech people, they don't use Google or, you know, they, they, and they mm-hmm. don't let their children use technology. And the other day I was like, I shouldn't be Googling stuff. I should be duck, duck going stuff. There's <laughs> like, there are alternative search engines. Um, so I actually think what's happening is I am in the stage of, uh, conscious incompetence. So no, but I'm super aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Um, I'm really, really trying. Um, and still, like, the play is written, the script is finalized, and still I, I'm i doing as much research now as I was doing when Olivia and I were writing the play. And so every day I feel like I'm thinking about something new, and, and I know Tia will relate to this. I go down rabbit holes of AI and, you know, the polarization of politics in this country so I still get sucked into it. Of course, the place I'm getting sucked into with learning about these things is on the internet. So no, but I'm okay. trying. <laughs> <laughs> Tia, you have a background as an actor, teacher, director, and vocal coach. You've acted on Broadway and focused a lot of your career on Shakespearean works. And now we live in this new world, temporary, maybe, where all that stagecraft has to be condensed into a physical stage that can be, you know, no more than a two-foot square and an audience that has to exist in each actor's imagination. Talk to me about directing in this new world order. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because I think every every day, every rehearsal, I and I think my peers are still having to figure the thing out. But I feel that, you know, the actors that we have, I mean, one, it comes back to... I think uh, just that same old, same old. It's about connection. It's about finding the truth, investigating, being curious. And then when you have actors who are just as curious as you are, then it's kind of easy to find your way. I think more so it's um, this platform, learning more and more about, <laughs> about this technology, Zoom, how to make it more fun for the audience and how can we use the platform 
in such a way that it it does still engage. I think the hardest part, you know, is you know obviously that that disconnect of not having the the audience and and um, we vibe from them. You know, if we're in the room together, I can feel where where the audience is, and so then it's kind of this dance, this journey. You know, in this in this particular vein, I think it's you know still discovery, still still figuring the thing out. How is it changing this era of of learning to act on Zoom? How is it changing how you teach? I mean, I'm guessing this semester you're in, incorporating probably last semester too, incorporating this new world. How how is it changing the teaching of, of stagecraft? You know, sometimes I feel like it's definitely fun on some days, but I can feel the students, you know, they, they, they've got the Zoom fatigue, um, especially the graduate students. They are longing to be in the classroom. So we really do the best that we can. So it's kind of a, a mix of, you know, especially the vocal work or showing exercises. I try to encourage the students of, all right, this is your space. And though it's not, you know, necessarily a studio or not, but it's your space and there's magic there too. So let's break this apart a bit. And so I find that, you know, we'll, we'll have fun, we'll have fun. And then there's this kind of lag where the actors are like, oh, I just wish I could um, touch or share or that connection of being in the room. It's challenging. And I think I've realized, though it's possible, that that need for connection, I don't think it's going to go away. And when we were able to get back in the same room again, I think it's going to be electric. <laughs> yeah, we've certainly got a lot of pent up energy waiting for that time we can <laughs> all meet together again. Elizabeth, in the three digital productions that Greenhouse Theatre Project has produced this past year, you've done a one woman show, Lauren Gunderson's Natural Shocks, two two person shows written specifically for the Zoom medium, plus a three person production of A Christmas Carol filmed in one amazing take. So in Nothing Can Stop What Is Coming, you have, am I right in thinking you have seven actors, which is kind of like a pre-COVID full cast production. How is it acting via Zoom with so many other people? Oh, it's so fun. I mean, (laughs) it really is because I I mean, going from a one woman show and then, okay, then there's another person, you know, in, in the frame with you or not even in the frame with you, but in the piece with you, Julia was like the first person I got to act with since COVID and like slowly easing our way, you know, adding more and more layers to it. It's, it's exciting. And I think the energy brought by all these different performers like Tia said, it vibes. It's vibing with us, you know, like we're vibing off each other. We're located all over the United States. So we're in different time zones, we've got different schedules. But when we come together, you still feel that sacredness that you feel in a rehearsal room, you know, when you enter the space and you leave everything else outside and you come into uh, into this room that you're sharing, that you're choosing to share with these other people, with these creators, it's powerful. And it's something that I've really been missing. But for some reason, it's this is translated to me. And I've been able to feel like I'm stepping into that room with these people. And so yeah, so it's, it's, it's more people. And I always, I always feel like in these tech situations, I always say like more tech, more problems, which is definitely (laughs) like the fear of things. There are so many more things that we have to kind of like, check and tick off our list. But I'm so grateful that uh, that Julia and Olivia have trusted Greenhouse with this piece to give it a platform 
and give it a place to live and breathe and that these actors and that Tia have so beautifully entered into this world with us, you know, and it just takes risk. It takes closing your eyes and taking, you know, one step in front of the next. We don't know what we're doing. We're kind of learning <laughs> as we go. Is that fair to say? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, yeah. but, but it's cool. And I think that I'm feeling, I'm feeling energized from it. So it's good. Julia, staying on the topic of Zoom, tell me about writing for Zoom versus writing for the stage in terms of how you have to tell a story on such a tiny stage. You can't be expansive with the actors' performances because they've just got this tiny space to work in. How does that change how you write? So Olivia and I thought a lot about this uh, at the beginning and we both wanted to write something and we didn't know what and we thought a lot about making a movie because it's easier, you know, we could quarantine and make something together or something. But theater is both of our first loves. <laughs> and so we we ultimately decided we wanted to write a play. Um, but we were both not interested in writing something that was pretending it was somewhere else and then being performed online. So we wrote it for Zoom. So all of the characters in the play are on Zoom in their rooms. So there's no... Uh, there are no, well, actually I use fake backgrounds because (laughs) I play an AI and you get to play around, (laughs) but there are no fake backgrounds other than that. Um, So there are students at a university and they're all on their Zooms in their Zoom class. And then there's another group of characters and they are also on their computers. So in terms of writing it, I think that we just gave ourselves like a really realistic structure. And I don't think it was that different. It's just that our setting was everyone at their computer. And even though there is a limitation there, there's part of me that feels like, you know, when you give yourself a really clear structure, that can be so helpful in terms of allowing yourself to be expansive within that. Because you know the rules, there is a certain freedom in being like, I can really play around within this. Um, And it's not like TV. You know, you do have to just technically adjust your voice a little. You're not on a stage, but it is theater for Zoom. It's not, you you can be bigger than, well, I also think you can act largely and expensively on TV, but um, you don't, I don't think we have to bring ourselves down necessarily to work within the confines of the, of the Zoom square. I mean, everything that I have seen that I think has worked well on Zoom has been the re- the reality of the play is everybody is on Zoom. That That's the story of the play. Tia, have you seen anything that's been written for this medium where people are not acting like they're on Zoom? <laughs> if you understand what I mean. <laughs> sort of. I mean, I think... I think actually one of the the best reasons why I'm great or that that it was great that that Julia and Olivia asked me was because I have not seen one Zoom show <laughs> that I truly loved. And it's funny because um I work for playmakers here in, in Chapel Hill and they invited me to direct As You Like It. And they were saying, okay, hey, is it going to be a Zoom show? And I said, hands down, I said, no, if, if that's what you want, then I, I think I can't do that. Because it's it's very tricky, I think, to really be engaged. And so I was like, okay, you want me to direct this Zoom show? <laughs> I don't know. And then when I read the script... 
Julia and Olivia, they're just brilliant. They're brilliant. And I felt myself so captivated by it. And I guess also the, the, the amount of time that I've spent in, in Zoom teaching and whatnot, I was like, there's something about this. And as we've been going through, I've found myself totally engaged. And I think that Julia and Olivia have written a, that it, it's not that you can't do pieces that are written for Zoom. I think it's tricky and that you have to really take care. Um, but what they've written, it has seemed incredibly easy and um, very engaging. So I think we, we might have nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. Oh, gosh. There was an article, I think, that maybe Elizabeth had posted on Facebook from the New York Times the other day. It was called The Arts Are in Crisis. And the main takeaway was, you know, art, music, drama, all these things that we love and that put so much meaning into our life, that they are instruments of psychic and social health. And the, the journalist said, not since 1945 has the United States required catharsis like it does in 2021. Who, who shall I ask this of? Um, <laughs> Tia, are you hopeful about what comes next? I am. I am because it's it's challenging sometimes when, you know, we're, we're in a, a moment of crisis, really. Crisis with the pandemic, crisis with our country. We've just within the, the last two weeks have seen such horrific acts. And so I think with all of this going on and us also in this pandemic and this isolation, there's a part of us having to deal with things on our own. And I think to what, you know, you're, you're speaking of in the article, we, we have a need for connection. And I think that this need of connection and storytelling, I think never before have I seen so many people latch on and want more art. I think I think it was that the you know the pandemic kind of awoke us to how much we we needed it um and and maybe even took it for granted. So I think we're all on board and we want it back. The desire for it is there so much that it'll be a great celebration when we're able to to connect in all of those ways. Well, on that note, Greenhouse Theatre Project's next production, And Nothing Can Stop What Is Coming, written by Olivia Hebert and Julia Vallon, will be performed live on Zoom from January the 29th to the 31st. Tickets are available from greenhousetp.org and cost $10. Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, Julia Vallon and Tia James, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank Thank you, you, Diana. I am going to end today with a quote from New York Times writer Jason Farrago, who wrote, A respiratory virus and an insurrection have, in their own ways, taken the country's breath away. Artists can teach us to exhale. Amen to that. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Alex George, Nikki Davis, Emmett Russell, Elizabeth Brown-Palmieri, Tia James and Julia Valen. 
Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Plus, she'll be a guest on next week's show. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.